All right. Hey, everyone. Happy Easter. Welcome to the exchange. Uh, first things first. Yes, my wife did dress me this morning, so please do not judge too hard. Uh, so you can't do that. But um, welcome. So glad you guys are here. Listen, um, happy Easter. I'm so glad you guys are here with us. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, we are here to celebrate Jesus and his resurrection. And so let's do this. Turn with me to Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. That is our text for today. But Genesis chapter 22, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We want to get you one so you can follow along with us. And again, if you are new, welcome. Uh, my name is Josiah. I would love to meet you after and just say hi. Um, in case this is your first time, someone begged you, please come, please come. And you kind of caved in. You're like, fine, I'll go. Listen, we're glad you're here. Um, I do believe God's going to speak to you today. And I'm very excited for our passage, for our text. Uh, listen, I want to do something like every Easter. This is something I want to do. So my wife and I were born and raised in Southern California. We went to a church out there just called Calvary Coast Mesa every year. Our pastor, his name was Pastor Chuck, he would just simply say, he is risen, and then we would say, he is risen indeed. All right, so I'm going to say, he is risen, and you say, he is risen indeed. Can we do that? Let's do that. He is risen. risen One more time. He is risen. risen And that's why we're here. And that's why Christians have gathered on Sundays for the past 2,000 years. We gather on the first day of the week to simply remember the fact that Jesus is risen that he rose on a Sunday. He rose on the first day of the week, and we've been celebrating it ever since. And why does this matter? It matters for so many reasons. It means our sins have been paid for. It means Jesus conquered death. It means that we too will one day rise. And so here's what the resurrection Sunday is for for all of us. On the cross, Jesus paid for our sins. The the payment of our sin was delivered on, on Good Friday, but we are delivered the receipt, in a sense, on Resurrection Sunday. The proof that our sins were paid for is the fact that Jesus rose again. The resurrection, in a sense, is like the receipt. God's saying, yes, your sins, the transaction went through, your sins have been paid for. And so here's what we're here to do. We want to look at the resurrection of Jesus, and our hope today, just like it was on Good Friday, is to do this from a different vantage point. Um, Every year you can look at similar texts, but we want to look at the resurrection from the Old Testament. Uh, what my hope is, my, my heart for our churches, is that we do see that this is not just some like New Testament idea. This is not some new thing that we invented, but that this was God's plan all along. And we see glimpses of the resurrection throughout the Old Testament leading up to Jesus' resurrection. And so I think we're going to look at one of the clearest pictures of the resurrection in our text today. And Paul said this is the whole point. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He said, Christ has died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That was Good Friday. And it says that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's what we're going to look at. That Christ rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. What scriptures is he referring to? What parables or what analogies or what stories? That's what we're going to look at. Jesus even said this about himself. He says, hey, when you read the Old Testament, all of it's about me. In Luke 24, 44, listen to what Jesus said. He said this, All things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And Jesus opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to him, to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Did you catch that? Jesus says everything, everything, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Psalms, the prophets, all of it speaking about my death and resurrection. That's a big claim. He says when you read the law, when you read the first five books, when you read the Psalms, when you read the prophets, you need to look for my death and resurrection and how the third day I would rise. And so we got to look for this phrase, the third day. We want to find this. Where is, what is Jesus referring to? Where do we see this in the law? And Genesis is the first book of the law. 
And so we're going to look at Genesis 22, where I think we probably have the greatest picture, complete picture of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so I do want to look at this, Genesis 22. And it's a famous story. It's a story many of us know. Um, It's the story where Abraham goes to offer up his son Isaac. Now we're going to read it, and we're going to look at it through, but I know this is a story that really has kind of, um, really has been passed down throughout literature. Many different beliefs even involve this story, and they kind of change it a bit. Uh, People who study literature say this is an incredibly well-written story, where he looks at the big picture, then focuses on some small conversations back and forth between the father and son. And here's why I'm sharing all this. Genesis 22 might be, for many, for some, one of the most difficult stumbling blocks of Scripture. Because God asked Abraham, I want you to take your son, I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. I want you to chop him up and light him on fire. That's essentially Genesis 22. And people look at this and they they go, how could a loving God ever do this? And honestly, for me, even when I read this, this is a difficult text. This is one of those texts where when you read it, you go, I understand and I get this, you guys, we're going to see it as a test. But for Abraham, it wasn't a test, it was his reality. God asked him to offer up his son as a sacrifice. And there's a side of this where this, should, this shouldn't really sit well with us. There's a side of this story where it might kind of turn our stomach into knots if we really do think about it. And I want to talk about why that is. Why does it do that? Why do we read this story and go, God, what kind of God would offer up a son? And why doesn't that uh, sit well with us? And we'll look at that at the end, but let's just read the story. Can we do that? Genesis 22, let's just read this and we'll pray and look at it more in depth. Genesis 22, verse 1. All right, Genesis chapter 22, it says, And if we could get the lights on the back, that might be helpful for those who can't see. But Genesis 22, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham? And he said, Here I am. Then he said, God said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. The the lad, the young man and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his his father, and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had, uh, had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. There is so much here. 
I hope you have a pen ready in some ways and can just take some mental notes. There's so much here. But before we do anything, before I even pray, um, I'm just going to ask that you guys would take a 10 seconds, 15 seconds. Would you guys pray? So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask that you guys just take 20 seconds and say, Lord, would you speak to me today? Maybe it's been a while since you've prayed. Maybe it's been a while since you felt like real intimacy and connection with God. And so I just say, hey, God, would you speak to me today? I want to hear from you. Give me ears to hear from you today. So why doesn't everyone just take a minute, take a second, bow your head and just say, God, please speak to me today. Father, I do ask that um, you would speak to us as you spoke to Abraham. And he said, here I am. God, I just ask there'd be a sense where we, we, we know, we, we feel, we sense, we, we look at this call of you, God, on our life. Where when you call our name, we would just say, here I am. Jesus, I ask that you just speak, that you'd move, that you'd move distractions, that this, this Sunday morning, this Easter Sunday, we remember the fact that your son, who is laid upon that wood, that three days later he rose again. And we thank you. And God, this is a beautiful day. This is a day where we realize you have won. Jesus, just speak and move and let your word be illuminated in our hearts. Let it be like something we've heard before but never heard before at the same time. So Lord, let this be fresh. Move by your spirit in your name. Amen. You know, we, we love stories. I think all people love a good story. We love to read stories, write stories, tell good stories. People make a lot of money making movies out of stories. Disney has told some phenomenal stories. You know, think about maybe your favorite Disney story. For some reason, Disney, they, they love to always have in one of their stories, a parent dies. I don't know, that's just their thing. It's like either mom or dad or both parents, and then they captivate you. Like, the movie Up was awful for me. My wife recently watched it. Like, this is terrible. Uh, but this is what they do. I remember the first time I actually saw Lion King, and I was like three or four, and I go, oh my gosh, wait, we die. Wait, that happens. Like Mufasa, the dad, the dad, dad are you gonna, I remember like it just ruins you. I have no idea how Disney sleeps at night. Um, but there, we love to tell stories. We love to write about stories. We love to sing stories. I heard country music tell some great stories. I just don't know any of it or really like it. So I'm sorry if that offends some of you, but I heard they have good stories in their music. Uh, but we do love to tell stories. I think about my son who's three, almost four. We read to him a story almost every night. He loves stories and he loves to interact with a story. One of his favorite books was Hop on Pop and I'd read to him Hop on Pop and then he would hop on pop. Like he loved it. Um, probably one of the most heart-wrenching, terrible stories we've ever read to our son. Maybe you might know this. It's called Love You Forever. Um, if it's up there, that picture. Anyways, but if you've ever read Love You Forever, I remember the first time my wife read this to my son when he was like one and she gets to the end where the son's holding the mom and like, I will love you forever. I'll like you for always as long as I'm, and she's just in tears crying. And Mike is like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know what you're saying. You know, he had like no compassion whatsoever. Uh, but we loved, and if you think about this, not just stories, but kids have some of the creepiest, weirdest stories. Think about Rockabye Baby. It's a terrible story. You know, there's some stories where you look on and go like, Little Red Riding Hood? I mean, it's off, like, ate the grandma. Like, we read these to our kids like it's normal. I, there's so many stories. I was walking, I was, like, reading to my son. I go, this is awful. Like, Alice in Wonderland's a little creepy. Like, there's some stories we tell to kids, and I'm like, I don't know if we should be telling this to kids. But we, we just have an infatuation with stories. We love to tell stories. Because here's the thing. Stories do tell us. Stories are also really a narrative. There's something about a story that just tells us, here's how life works. My life is a story. Your life is a story. Another way of putting it, like kind of like a buzzword, I just said it, but it is a narrative. Like my life is a narrative. Your life is a narrative. There are a lot of beliefs. There's a lot of ideas out there, and there are narratives trying to tell a certain story. You see, I want to, I want to paint a picture because the Bible is filled with stories, with filled with narratives. 
Now, these are not fairy tale or mystical. These are true stories that reveal to us the nature of God, the nature of man. And something I want us to see is that even though the Bible, I understand for many of us it can be overwhelming, Genesis to Revelation, 66 books, tons of stories, but the Bible, even though it's filled with all these stories, it's ultimately telling one story, one grand story. We call that the meta-narrative. This is the story of stories, the story that all other stories lead up to. This story is the fact that God created man. Everything was good. We were creating God's image, and then man disobeyed God. We call that the fall. Sin came into the world, death and disease. And then ever since man fell, we've been looking for redemption, the day we could be right with God again. And then we look at redemption, and then we see ultimately redemption has happened through Jesus, now restoration where God rules and reigns and makes all things new. So I just kind of went through it. But the meta-narrative of the Bible is these four parts. It's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. See, even though we're going to look at one story, all stories, in a sense, are showing this truth. They're showing how God created things and created them good, but sin came in. There's a fall, then we're seeking redemption, and then God has redeemed us, but now we're seeking restoration, complete wholeness. And so you see that there's stories, but there's one grand story. See, so there's a story that God tells us. There's a story that God's writing. All of our stories, you guys, every individual story in this room, there's so many stories here. I mean, we could talk for hours and days and days about all the stories here. But all of our stories lead up to one story. It's lead up to one great story. The story of the cross, the story of res- restoration, and God is writing a story. But here, here's the other thing. The enemy is also telling us other stories. There are other narratives the enemy likes to throw in there. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, he's like, well, did God really say? Maybe God's withholding good from you. Maybe God doesn't want you to be like him. And the enemy likes to throw in other narratives and throw in other stories. And so my question is, what story are you believing? What narrative about life, about God, about God's personality, about who you are made in God's image, what story are you believing? You see, ultimately the Bible is trying to point us to this one story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And here in Genesis 22, I think we have a phenomenal story that tells us the gospel. Now I do have a question for everyone, because everyone should consider this question. How was someone saved or made right with God before the death and resurrection of Jesus? So if I lived before Jesus came and died and rose again, how would I be right with God? Simple answer, ready? By faith. By faith. How is someone right with God after the death and resurrection of Jesus? By faith. The same way we are saved today, by faith. It's the same way they are saved then, by faith. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, there's a simple little verse. It says, the just shall live by faith. Or it means actually the righteous shall be living by faith. Here is the thing we see throughout the Bible. Um, before Jesus died and rose again, people who lived before that time, they were looking for the promised the one, the promise one. The one who would come, and would die, the one who would take their place, the one who would be the sacrifice of the world and redeem man. They look forward to it. We are on the other side of the cross. We look back in faith. So let me make this really clear. People before Christ looked forward to Jesus in faith. They trusted for the promised one. They're looking in faith. We are looking back in faith. And so this is what I want us to talk about. Because we see that this story in Genesis 22 is a story that's just repeated over and over again, ultimately in the cross. You see, Jesus asked this question that just kind of haunts me and just sits with me. It's in Luke chapter 18, verse 8. He says, when the Son of Man comes, Jesus is talking, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? That is a verse when, I, when you come across and read it, you go, well, why do you ask that, Jesus? What are you saying? Is, is there a side of this where it's just like, when I come back, am I going to find people who are living by faith? Am I going to find people who are walking by faith? 
See, the, the whole idea is, this is for me and this is for you. When Jesus comes again, are you, are you living by faith? Am I walking by faith? See, we're going to look at the story of Abraham, who's called the father of faith. And Abraham had such a powerful faith. He had something called like, a resurrecting faith. You see, he looked forward to the resurrection. He had this resurrection faith. We look back to the resurrection. We too have a resurrection faith. He looked forward to it. We just look back at it. So I want to break down this text because there's so much here. So Genesis chapter 22, we're going to look at five key areas, I believe, of Abraham's faith, of resurrection faith. And so if you would, you're like, five? I know it's five. You can handle it. But five. First one's this, all right? First idea of resurrection faith, number one, resurrection faith is personal. Resurrection faith is personal. If you would, look at verse one, verse one with me. It says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Okay, listen, resurrection faith is personal. I want you to feel like the, normal, the normalness of this, where God's like, hey, Abraham, he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm here. Abraham had this deep, just intimate connection relationship with God. God just speaks to me, he's like, yeah, what's up? See, resurrection faith, faith is personal. There's a side of this where God calls you by name and you say, yeah, God. In Isaiah 43, verse one, it says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you're mine. Please hear that. God says, fear not, I've redeemed you. I've called you by name, you're mine. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. And guess what? My sheep know me. My question is, do you know Jesus in this way? Have you experienced the time where Jesus called you about my name and says, hey, I love you. I created you. I made you. You know you're made for more. You know I'm speaking to you right now. You know I'm talking to you. No one else in the room, I'm talking to you. And you say, here I am. You see, I want to say this again. Resurrection faith is personal. And by that, I mean this. Resurrection faith is in a person. You see, Jesus is that person. You see, God longs for intimacy with us. There came a point in time in my life when it's no longer what I was hearing being taught in my family, in my school, my church. It's no longer other people's faith, but it became my faith. You see, resurrection faith is personal. It's in a person. Jesus is the object of our faith. Can I I just say this? You can have all the faith in the world, but if it's in the wrong thing, it doesn't matter. You have a little bit of faith, but if it's in the right thing, it, it matters. See, everyone, all of us here exercise faith in some capacity. We all put faith in something. We trust in something. We look to something to give us meaning or value. All of us put faith in something. And again, the question is, but what is the object of your faith? So for example, for me, um, I'm not a big fan of of airplanes. Never been a big fan of airplanes. Just still, I kind of cringe when I think about it. You know, they they age, they they go down. Apparently now they just nosedive randomly. I don't know what's going on with them. I'm like, what's happening right now? I'm not a big fan of them. But here's the thing. Even though I have very little faith in airplanes, I still do get in it. Now, here's the thing. If the airplane lands, guess what? I land. It doesn't matter if I had a lot of faith or little faith. If I'm in the airplane and it lands, I land with it. My, my point is, we have the right object of our faith, that is Jesus Christ. Some of you have, like, all the faith in the world in Jesus. Like, you have this great faith, and some of you are like, how do you have that much faith? It's awesome. Some of you have very little faith, but if it's in the right object, Jesus is the object of our faith. It's not the amount of faith that matters. It is the object of our faith that matters. And this is what is happening with Abraham. Abraham's called the father of faith because he's putting it in the right person. God calls him and he goes, here I am. Did you see verse one again? It says, what does it say? It says, it came to pass after these things that God tested him. Let me just make this really clear. A personal faith is a tested faith. If you have a personal faith with God, it's gonna be tested. We we do know that. Can I just point this out? This was not the first testing of Abraham. Abraham's been tested a lot up until this point. This is Genesis 22. Abraham so far, God has tested him in many ways, but this testing is very different. And here's what I mean. Um, In Genesis 12, God says, hey, Abraham, I want you to leave your, your pagan beliefs, your, your pagan God, follow me. I will give you a great inheritance. Leave all, follow me. Awesome. 
hey, leave your inheritance, I'll be inheritance, great. Leave your family, I'll be your family, great. Here's what I want to point out. Up until this point, God has tested Abraham, and Abraham has shown great faith. He already has. Genesis 15, it says, Abraham believed God, and God said, Abraham, you're righteous. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham's already shown great faith, but here's what's really different about this testing. You ready? The testings he had before, there's always this counterbalance. If you give this up, I'll be in your inheritance. If you leave all, you'll have limitless family, seed, offspring. But here, God says, give up your son. And Abraham, I think, is going, and you will raise him up. You will give me a new, like, well, how does this work? But this is where God's like, no, no. I, I, this is a different test. Give me that thing that you love with all of your heart. And there, there's no part two to that. Abraham in faith has to trust the character and nature of God at that point. He, he has to hear this test and go, okay, God. See, I'm, I'm often asked a question. It's the same question asked many different ways. Maybe you've asked this question. It's, can I still follow God and do this? Can I follow God and can I still continue in this relationship? Can I still do that thing? Can I still believe that thing? Can I still give into that thing? Can I follow God and can I still have X? And the problem is, here's a way to, of defining a God, I think, in some ways, um, as that non-negotiable. I think if we could look at God as that non-negotiable. So here's what we do. We say, can I still follow God and do this? And that this is your non-negotiable. You're saying, well, as long as God of the Bible, as long as God of the Bible lets me keep this, and I can still do this and behave this way, act this way, give in this thing, as long as he'll let me do this, then I'll continue to follow God. But as soon as God says, give us up, no, I'm not going to follow him anymore. So guess what? That thing was your non-negotiable. That thing was truly your God. You see, there comes a point in time where you say, God, you're my non-negotiable. doesn't matter. You can, you, whatever you want. Wherever you want it, however you want it, you're my non-negotiable God. So here's my question to you. Has God become that non-negotiable to you? Has God become that one where you're saying, I'm not, not going to budge. I'm not going to budge in any way. See, here's a one way of putting it. Um, are you willing to follow God if there's nothing in it for you? You're like, Josiah, you're a terrible, terrible salesperson, I know. But this is true. <laughs> are you willing to follow God if there's absolutely nothing in it for you? Now, is there something in it for you? Of course. We, we know that, eternal life. But, but ultimately, guys, let me just say this. There's a book called um, God is the Gospel. I think it's so appropriate, especially for us Americans. We go to God, we're like, okay, God, I believe in you. What are you going to do for me? And we're like, all right, I believe in you. Come on, give me that new thing. And we go to God as like God's a genie. And can I tell you, like, we ask, like, the gospel is something God's, like, what else are you going to do for me? Oh, cool, Jesus died and rose again, but what, el what else you got? And here's the thing. The good news is that it's God. We get God. The gospel is not just you get heaven, you get eternal life, great news, but you get God. That's better news. You get God. You get to be reunited with your maker. You get to have communion again with your maker. Is that not the gospel? Amen? Can we have our hearts crave for the right thing again? You see, God has tested Abraham and said, Abraham, I've already tested you. You've already shown yourself really strong. But there's no counterbalance to this. If you do this, then I'll do this. There's just, if, just do this. Just, just do this. And he literally has to go, okay. You see, a personal faith is tested. And for faith to grow, guys, it must be tested. Faith must be tested. Faith must be exercised. If I want my faith to grow, I got to exercise my faith. I can't be like, I showed faith one time. It needs to be worked out. It needs to be exercised. Same thing with your physical body. If you want your physical body to grow and get stronger, you have to exercise it. No one gets stronger from just doing nothing. If that were the case, I would be huge right now, right? That thing is like, there are those anomalies that kind of bug everyone, like they eat a donut. You're like, you just got another six-pack ab. How did you, I, we hate those people. I get that. But the idea is faith, just like our body, must be exercised in order to grow. And God, time and time again, is testing Abraham. He's testing him, testing him, testing him. But this test is very unique. And he's basically saying, are you willing to follow me if there's nothing in it for you? There's no promise attached to this. Abraham has to rely on something else he, he heard a long time ago. 
And so let me just say this again. Please hear this. Resurrection faith is personal. Is Jesus the object of your faith? Have you heard him say, hey, your name, so-and-so. You're like, here I am. Called you by name, you are mine, God says. I'm the good shepherd, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. Have you felt that call? Have you heard that call and say, I do believe God is calling you? I believe some of you have heard God's voice. Maybe you've ran from it, and I'd say respond to it. Number two is this. Resurrection faith is practical. All right, resurrection faith is practical. It doesn't always sound practical, but it's practical. Look at verse two. All right, verse two. Then God said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. All right, resurrection faith is practical. Okay, I want you to just kind of hear what happened. He goes, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him up on, the mount- on one of the mountains of Moriah, which I'm going to tell you. And what does it say in verse 3? It says he rose early in the morning. That is mind-blowing to me. He's like, take your only son, who you love, offer him up. He rose early in the morning. If this was like written to me, it'd probably be like, and Josiah considered it <laughs> and weighed the pros and cons. <laughs> I don't think he'd be like, Josiah rose early in the morning. Like there's immediate obedience with Abraham. Absolutely immediate obedience. And that, here's my point. Resurrection faith is practical. There's something about hearing God's word and it's, okay, you spoke, I'm going to do it. You know, James, the half-brother of Jesus, actually writes about this moment with Abraham and Isaac in James chapter 2, verse 21. Write this down, read this, it's up here. Listen to this verse, James 2, verse 21. He writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Here's what's so interesting to me. Paul in Romans 4 says, Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. James goes, he was justified by works and his faith. Huh? Both. You see, Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God's word, and God says, you're righteous. Because faith comes by hearing, by hearing my word, and you believed it, and you received it. But then, what he believed and he put into action. See, James 2.17 says, faith by itself without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. People can say, I believe in Jesus all day long. Okay, awesome. Awesome, you believe in Jesus. Awesome, I believe in God. I'm good, I believe in God. Awesome, even the demons believe in God and tremble. It's not just about believe, like, but does that faith, what does it take you to? What does it do within you? His faith was very practical. He rose early in the morning. He obeyed immediately. One way to put it, we'll put it up here, is hearing the word initiates faith. Doing the word demonstrates faith. All right? Hearing the word of God will initiate faith, but doing the word of God is what demonstrates faith. Here's the thing. Um, I I really don't want to be in date myself, you guys, of coming week after week after week, hearing God's word, putting on sermons, listening to worship, all this stuff. We hear, we hear, we hear, we hear. And then there needs to be a point in time where we, we do where our faith is exercised and it's expressed and Abraham rose early in the morning. Now, if you haven't got this picture yet, let me just paint it really clearly. Abraham's son Isaac, I think, is the greatest picture or type of Christ in the Old Testament. Maybe Joseph, but I'm starting with Isaac right now. Isaac, I believe, is probably the greatest picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. How do you, what do you mean by type of Jesus in the Old Testament? Here's what I mean. There's so many ways, but let's just put up a few really quick. How is Isaac a picture of Jesus? Uh, first thing is this. We can put up all of them. Uh, both births were prophesied. Isaac's birth was prophesied. Hey, you're, you're going to have a son. His birth was prophesied. Jesus' birth was prophesied in Isaiah 7. Uh, both births were a miracle. I mean, I want you to think about this. Abraham's old. His, his wife, Sarah, she was old. 
All right, her giving birth was an absolute, even she laughed when, when, the, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham and was like, hey, you're gonna have a son. She was over here in the room and it says she laughed out loud. She's like, ha, like mocking God, ha, I'm gonna have a son. And God, and I was like, okay, his, his name's gonna be laughter, Isaac. Um, I love that story. She literally laughs at God. But can, can I tell you, it's funny, if you talk to a Jew who's like, you believe Jesus was born of a virgin, a miracle birth. I'm like, you do too, Isaac. Like he had a miracle birth. Like I don't understand what's happening here. But they're bo- they're bo- both of their births were a miracle. Number three, uh, both were named before they were born. Matthew one twenty one. you shall call his name Jesus. Hey, you shall call his name Isaac. Both of them were names. Uh, both were the father's beloved and only son. And this is what's profound to me. Now, we could talk about Ishmael. And we could talk about the son born of flesh, the, the illegitimate son, the son that was cast off, and we're not going to get into that story now. It's interesting to me how God recognizes Isaac as his only son. And, and please hear, please do not miss this. Did you catch that in verse uh, four? What does verse four say? Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. I mean, what is happening at this moment? Do you guys not see what he's saying? Take your only son Isaac, whom you love. Let me point this out really quick. This is the first time, don't miss this, this is the first time the word love is used in the entire Bible. The first time love is mentioned is in Genesis 22 right here. Love is not talked about at that point in time between Adam and Eve, between brothers, <laughs> we know how that went. The first time love is mentioned is between a father's love for a son. And we call this, this is the principle of first mention, meaning the first time you see a really significant word like this, it helps us define what that word, how it's intended to be used or how it might be intended to use in the future. So here, here's what I wanted to point out really quick. The first time God uses the word love is about a father's love for a son. The first time in the New Testament we see the word love is about a father's love for a son. It's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. We'll put it up here. It says, a voice came from heaven saying what? This is my beloved, this is my loved son in whom I'm well pleased. Really quick, just notice this. In Matthew's gospel, in Mark's gospel, and Luke's gospel, this is the same verse used three times. The first time you see the word love used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is what? All about a father's love for his son. He says, take now your son, your only son whom you love. And then God says about Jesus, hey, my son whom I love, my beloved son, my beloved son, Matthew, Mark, Luke. The first time in the Gospel of John, though, the first time the word love is used in the Gospel of John is what? For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here's what's so interesting. The first time we see love used is father's love for son, father's love for son, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke. But then in the Gospel of John, it's like, well, God so loves you. God so loves the world. See, just like Abraham was asked to offer up the son whom he loved, our father's asked to offer up the son whom he loved. And the idea for us in this, in this point is because why? Because he so loved us. Because he gave up his son so you and I could become sons and daughters of God. God's like, I love my son and I love you. And I'm gonna give my only son for you. So I, I want you to see between Abraham and Isaac, it is the clearest picture of the gospel. And so resurrection and faith, you guys, let me get this. It's practical. He rose early in the morning. But let's move on. This one, this one is what gets me. Number three, resurrection faith is powerful. Is powerful. Okay, look if you would at verse four. Verse four, what does it say next? It says, then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. All right, resurrection faith is powerful. And here's what I mean. By the way, if you read verse five, he says, we're gonna go worship. That's amazing to me. After everything Abraham's been asked, he, he calls it worship. That, that's incredible. He goes, God, I'm gonna show you who I truly worship in this moment in time. And it's not my son. We're gonna go worship. 
But notice what he says to these two men, and that's interesting too, there's these two men, but he says to them what? He says, we will come back to you. Did you catch that in verse 5? But we're going to come back to you. What bold, powerful faith. Do you think Abraham was like lying? Just like, uh, we're going to go to the mountain and we're going to come back to you. <laughs> like, do you think like he was like lying to these guys because they wouldn't be found out that he didn't go offer son up? Do you think Abraham knew it was a test? He's like, I just know this. God's not really going to make me do that. No, no. Here, here's what Abraham knew. Can I actually point this out? Abraham, in his mind, believed, I'm going to go up there and murder my son, and God's going to resurrect him. Abraham fully believed after he's, he, in a sense, takes the knife, kills his son, lights him on fire on this wood offering, that God would take the ashes and make his son come back to life. You say, Josiah, you're speculating. I'm not. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says this, all right? Let's throw the verse up so you can see this. Hebrews 11, verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Listen, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Resurrection faith is powerful. Abraham in his mind fully believes, I'm going to go up that mountain with my son. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to light him on fire, turn to ashes, and God's going to take the ashes and make him up. He concluded in his heart that God was going to resurrect him. He literally believed, God, you've given me this promise. Here's why. God said, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Look at the stars of the sky. As many stars as in the sky, you're going to have offspring. So Abraham clung to that promise and said, listen, I, I can kill my son, but God already gave me a promise. God told me that in my seed, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So even if I kill my son, guess what? He will rise. That is some powerful faith. One way to put it too is faith does not demand explanations. Faith rests on promises. God did not say, take your son, your only son, off him up. And Abraham's like, wait, wait, this is me. Because I like to just ask questions and I can be really annoying with this sometimes. Um, but I go, wait, 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 but how are you going to do this, God? Like, hold on. Like you said, in my seed, all of the nations. Okay, so what are you gonna, tell me your game plan. <laughs> like he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, God, give me an explanation. He rests on the promise that he had from God. And see, here's where we're at today. Because some of you, I, I get this. I really do get this. Some of us want an explanation from God. Like, God, why would you do this? Why would you allow this? Why would you say this? And we want an explanation, and God's just saying, rest on my promise. Let me see, I, I know there's something with all of us that we want that explanation, but I'm going to tell you, do what Abraham did and rest on his promise. What did he say? He said, we will come back to you. I don't, know, I don't know if I would have said that so confidently. We're going to go worship and come back to you. But can I point out to you just like kind of the key phrase? And if you would, Bible students, like circle this, love this. This is amazing. Verse 4, what does it say? We just read it in verse 4. Um, or sorry. Yeah, verse uh, 4. He says, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Here, do not miss this. Please, please follow me with this. God said in verse 1, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him up as an offering. Three days later, he gets to the mountain. Now, in Abraham's mind, when God says, take your son and make him a sacrifice, understand, in Abraham's mind, his son is as good as dead. God has said, take my son, my, my only son, and offer him up. My son, he's as good as dead. On the third day, what happens? He goes up the mountain, and he comes down the mountain. On the third day, his son is still living. Or on the third day, you could say his son, in his mind, came back to life. As Hebrews eleven nineteen puts it, he concluded that God, he received him in a figurative sense that God raised him from the dead. Do we, when Jesus says, and when Paul says, on the third day, Christ will be raised again, there, there's this thing in the Bible, we'll look for the third day. It's Daniel in the lion's den. On the third day, he gets out. It's Jonah in the whale. On the third day, he gets out. Where's the resurrection? It's just all throughout the Old Testament. On the third day, he gets to the mountain, and guess what? His son comes back with him. Is, there, is this not the resurrection? Is this not the promised resurrection? On the third day? When you read this now, it, it needs to change how we read scripture. I'm looking for Jesus now. 
Jesus even told us to do this. When you read the scriptures, you think you have life, but these are they which speak of me. He's like, look for me. It's about me. On the third day, on the third day they go up, but they come down. Isaac was still living. Isn't that incredible? Our God is just like constantly just writing this story over and over again. And so we're gonna look at number four. Listen, resurrection faith, listen, is prophetic. Resurrection faith is prophetic. What do you mean? Read verse six. Verse six says, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. They said, look, the fire and, and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Resurrection faith is prophetic, and I'll explain that in a second, but I want you to see this. This is actually the only conversation recorded between Abraham and Isaac. This is the only conversation in Genesis between Abraham and his son Isaac, where there were actually being quotes, like saying, hey, dad, yeah, Where's the lamb? Um, let me just point out a couple things really quick before we move on. Um, I, when the Bible says that he was a lad, he was a lad, this word young, young man in Hebrew, it honestly, most scholars will say this means 17 to 30 years old. Like he's a young man. He's a young man. He's 17 to 30 years old. Okay. I, I want to point this out. Isaac's not, um, he's not dumb. He's not this little kid who's like, he's carrying wood up a mountain. All right. He's, he's a young man. He's strong. It's believed that Isaac is not just being like, I left it out of the dark here. But he's looking at the scenario and going, oh, wait, something's happening. Okay, my dad's going to do something here. And it's almost as he's having to trust his father in this moment. And, and honestly, anyone who studies this and reads this says, this guy was not a child. He was a young man. This guy, Isaac, could have realized at any point in time, oh, my goodness, my dad's taking me up a mountain to slaughter me. Let me break his hip and stop him, right? His dad's 120 to 130 years old. Understand that. Abraham's old, all right? I, I think a 20-year-old Isaac will beat 120-year-old Abraham. I, would you agree? I, I just think he's, he would win. There's a side of this where Isaac is going up willingly. He's looking at the scenario and going, I'm going to trust my father in this moment. And here's why I say that. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it back up again. Listen, Jesus willingly laid down his life. Do you understand? When, when it says Abraham took the wood and placed it on Isaac, his son, and they go up to a mountain to his death, what does that remind you of? Simple answer in church. When in doubt, Jesus. Think about this. Think about this. He takes wood, lays it on his back, and they go up to the place of his death. I mean, he's just not reenacting the cross. Taking the wood, laying it on his back, going to the place of his death. And we see that Isaac did it willingly. We see that Jesus did this willingly. We, this is not some horrific, terrible father forcing his son. This is son who's going, I'm trusting my father in this moment. And this is so important. That phrase laid, it just like stuck out to me. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says, God has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Just like Father Abraham laid the wood on his son's back, our Father God laid the sin of the world on Jesus. And he's carrying this up the, to the place of his death. And, and what we have to see, when I say resurrection faith is prophetic, notice the conversation. Hey, Dad, where's the lamb? And he goes, Son, my God will provide for himself the lamb. Verse 8. My God will provide for himself the lamb. That word provide means to see to it, to see it done. He says, my God's going to see it done. Hey, Isaac, that's not for you to worry about. That's not our job. Our job's not to worry about the lamb. That's God's job. Our job's not to try to make this happen. That's, that's on him. I'm not here trying to figure this out. I'm here to say, God, this is your job to provide the lamb. See, here, here's the question of scripture, because I want to point this out. Abraham promised what? My God will provide himself a lamb, right? But what was, what was caught in the thicket? It was a ram. 
So in a sense, the lamb was never there. This question of where is the lamb just kind of lingers throughout history. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb that God promised? Where's the sacrifice to end all sacrifices? Where is the lamb? When John the Baptist saw Jesus, what did he see? Behold the lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isaac, where's the lamb? Here comes Jesus on the scene and they go, hey, behold, that's the lamb. That's the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Can I just point this out? The storyline of the Bible, I love this thought. It's Genesis 22, where's the lamb? It's behold the lamb. And Revelation 5, it's worthy as the lamb. Do you want all the Bible flows? Where's the lamb? We've fallen, we're broken, we need redemption. Where's the lamb? We see Jesus behold the lamb. And then guess what? One day, Revelation 5, all, all the people will be gathered around the throne going, worthy is the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. See, this is the story of the Bible. God is writing the story. God will provide for himself a lamb. That word for is not even there. It, it's, it's written like this. God will provide himself lamb. <laughs> it's really interesting. God, God, will, God will be lamb. God will see to the lamb. It's written in such a unique way. Let me say this, guys. Please don't miss this. Resurrection faith is prophetic. Abraham looks forward in faith that God will provide a ram. Can I tell you, we are looking back at Jesus for his death and resurrection, but can I tell you, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith? We're also looking forward. We, too, need to have resurrection faith that when we see Jesus, we'll resurrect. We'll be like him. We'll be made into his image. See, our faith is still needs to be like Abraham's. He had prophetic faith. We need prophetic faith. Amen? And lastly, we're going to see number five is this. Resurrection faith is public. Resurrection faith is public. Let's look at verse 9 through 14. Verse 9. What does it say? It says, Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand, uh, your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the pl- that place, the name of the place, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Please not miss this. Re- Abraham had resurrection faith. His resurrection faith is public. It was made known. He had to do this and he had to do this publicly, and he, 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 for this moment in time, was known as now as the father of faith. See, I, I want you just to imagine this scenario. He gets to the top of the mountain. He makes everything up. He sets everything up. The wood's there, and literally it says he takes out the knife, and he stretches out his hand, and in my mind, I do just kind of imagine him, like, slowing down, like, here I go, God, like, kind of like, any second, but I'm sure it's just like in faith he goes back, and God's like, stop. I provide a sacrifice for you. There's a ram. You don't need to do this. Your faith is made known. Your faith is made public. And Abraham does go down in history as that father of faith. The first person, in a sense, the first person to really show this kind of faith to be the father of the Jewish nation. He goes, you, you've done it. You had a public faith. And listen, I do think ultimately we need a public faith. A faith that's going to be made known. A faith that we're not ashamed of. A faith that we can tell others about. And so, can I say this? It's not just that Abraham's faith is made known. It's that his God is made known. It's not just our faith is made known. It's that our God is made known. Our God is made known through our faith. This is happening with Abraham. And, and here's the thing we see time and time again in Scripture. Stop. Provide the ram. Here's a substitute. In the book of Exodus, stop. Firstborn son dies or a lamb dies. Substitute. We see this idea of substitution introduced over and over again. Stop. Substitution. Instead of the firstborn, instead of Isaac, instead of this moment in time, we're going to have a substitute. It's going to be a ram. It's going to be a lamb. It's going to be a goat. There's going to be some sort of substitution. And ever since then, we've been looking again for that substitution. And here's what I want to say. Do you know that they go to the land of Moriah? 
and it says Jehovah Jireh, that God will provide, that God will see to it, that God will see, let me say this, Jehovah Jireh means God sees your need and will meet it. <laughs> That's what it means. God sees it and will meet it. He says, here's the biggest need you have. You need to be right with me. And so I see your need. I'm going to meet your need with provide this offering. And here's what's so interesting, by the way. Can we just, um, um, this, is, this is Bible. This is history. This is truth. They go to the land of Moriah. Where's Moriah? Moriah, before all this was established, Moriah are the hills of Jerusalem. Moriah is the mountain range where you see the hills in Jerusalem. Moriah is where they would centuries later build the temple and slaughter sacrifices time and time again. Moriah is the mountain where Jesus was taken up to be cru- crucified. Do you understand that Abraham's in the place where just in a couple thousand years, another father will be taking up his only son, bearing wood on his back, but this time the knife wouldn't be withheld? This time judgment would be made? You see, we're seeing time and time again, this is literally in the same location, the land of Moriah, the mountains, the hills of Moriah, the hills of Jerusalem, where the temple was, where Jesus was, and God is saying, listen, I'm not going to spare my only son, though. I'm going to give my son. And just like Isaac, though, just like Isaac came down the mountain three days later after, after the father said to kill him, three days later, Jesus comes out of the grave. You see, I, I, this to me is un, an unbelievable story of just the gospel, of God saying, listen, Abraham, you get to spare your son, but I don't get to spare mine. Romans 8.32 says this, He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, not, uh, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He says this, God did not spare his own son. God gave the best he had for you. And then this idea of provision comes in. Shall he not give you all things? That you, shall he not meet your needs, the real needs of your heart, the real needs of your life? And this idea of, again, Jehovah Jireh is introduced in Romans 8. God sees your need and he's going to meet it. God did not spare his own son. Abraham, you will get to do that. I won't, I won't get to do that. I'm going to have to offer him up. But this is why we're here today. Because Isaac came down the mountain three days later and Jesus came out of the grave three days later. Amen? Because death did not have a hold. Death did not win. You see, they were looking forward in faith for that substitute. We look back in faith. By faith, you've been saved through grace, not of works, as anyone should boast, it's the gift of God. We look back in faith at the perfect work of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And throughout the Bible, throughout history, God's trying to show this idea of death and resurrection, death and resurrection on the third day. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of the gospel, that Jesus died and rose again. And he who believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know what I, I said in the very beginning? why this, I think, story doesn't sit well with us. When, you, when people look at this and go, why would God condone child murder? And first of all, in Deuteronomy, it says God takes no pleasure in that. God wants no s- child being sacrificed. But why does he ask Abraham to do it then? Why doesn't this sit well with us? Why does this frustrate so many people and say, look at this, div- this just divine child abuse. Why would your God ever want this or tell people to do this? I think it's, it's meant to not sit well with us. I think it should, in a sense, rub all of us the wrong way. I, I don't think we should just hear that story and move on. I think there's a side of this where we should go, yeah. Because this foreshadows the cross. Because in reality, this is being about my Savior, my God, where, where God was not able to spare his son. God laid down his son. You see, it probably shouldn't sit well with us because you know why? This, this is what the story tells us. You are that bad and you are that loved. The gospel tells us our sins deserved, required a sacrifice, but you're that loved by God that he gives his best for you. If he did not spare his own son, shall he also not freely give you all things? It's like, this is God's love for you. Listen, I don't know if you've heard this many times. I don't know if you've never heard this. I don't know if you've heard this. I don't know, but I, I do know this. I do believe God wants to call you by name and say, you are mine. I formed you in your mother's womb. I made you. I'm calling you by name. Believe on me. Receive me. See, I do believe there might be someone in here who needs to believe on Jesus, receive Jesus. What better day than today? 
What better day than on Easter Sunday where we celebrate Jesus is risen, that death did not win. Jesus said this in, in John eleven twenty five. Listen, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I love that question at the end. I'm the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. If you believe in me and you die, you're going to live. Do you believe this? I love that question. Looks at the crowd. Do you believe this? Let me ask you, do you believe this? If you say, yes, I do, and you've never publicly made known your faith, what a great day. Guys, I'm going to pray, and I, I do believe God might be speaking to someone in this room, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to publicly make known your faith. So why don't we just pray? Church, we just pray with me? Let's pray for a second. Father, we just, um, we're humbled by this truth that you gave your best. You did not spare your only son for us. That Jesus, you rose from the grave. That Jesus, you conquered sin and hell and death. That God, though we die, we shall live. And so Jesus, we're here now to look to you, to seek you. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you just be calling people by name in this moment. That you be moved in this place. God, we cannot do anything on our own or from our force, works, or effort, but Jesus, we ask, God, that you would save. So be in this place, Jesus. Church, before I say amen, listen, the gospel is not that necessarily you die and get to go to heaven if you believe in Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. Jesus is the good news. The one who made you, the one who designed you, the Bible says you can be reunited with him. You can walk with him. You can talk with him. See, I do want to make this really clear. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. There's a side of this where by faith, they looked forward to the death and resurrection of that substitute. By faith, we look back at the substitute at Jesus Christ. And so here's what I'm going to say. Um, Jesus said in Revelation, he says, whosoever thirsts, come. If you want to drink of the waters of eternal life, come. And honestly, I believe time and time again, the Bible gives an invitation of come, come, come. Come and believe in Jesus. Come and receive Jesus. I have no idea if that's you, but if you sense the Holy Spirit speaking to you, you say, you know what? I want to today make my faith public. I want to today make my faith known. I'm thirsty. Nothing seems to satisfy. I want to come to the waters and have eternal life. I want to have God. I want to have a relationship with him. Here's what I'm going to do. Make it simple. We're just going to give a moment of time to play some, some worship. And if you sense that God was speaking to you today and you want to make your faith known, you want to make your faith public, I'm going to ask you to just come up here. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. Say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I believe in you. Church, I'm going to be asking that you just be praying. I do believe that time and time again, God leaves the 99 for the one. And if there's the one who says, I want to be right with God, I'm going to ask that you would come. So they're going to play a song, and during that song, I'm going to ask that you come, and you pray a prayer, and say, Jesus, I need you. I believe in you. I want to receive you. I want to follow you. I believe you are the resurrection and the life, and that though I die, I don't have to fear death anymore, because my faith's in you. My hope's in you. So would you guys be praying? And if that's you, just come forward. Come say, I want to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Be praying. We're going to worship. Please feel free to come now.